Well, this morning we are going to be in Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13, and I'll be reading from the English Standard Version. I'm going to bring the text up on the screen. Hear the word of the Lord. And Jesus also said to the disciples, There was a rich man who had a manager, and charges were brought to him that this man was wasting his possessions. And he called him and said to him, What is this that I hear about you? Turn in the account of your management, for you can no longer be manager. And then a manager said to himself, What shall I do since my master is taking the management away from me? I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I've decided what to do, so that when I am removed from management, people may receive me into their houses. And so summoning his master's debtors one by one, he said to the first, How much do you owe my master? He said, A hundred measures of oil. He said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. And then he said to another, And and how much do you owe? He said, A hundred measures of wheat. He said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. The master commended the dishonest manager for his shrewdness. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own generation than the sons of light. And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails you, you may receive you, you, they may receive you into the eternal dwellings. One who is faithful in very little is also faithful in much, and one who is dishonest in a very little is also dishonest in much. If then you have not been faithful in the unrighteous wealth, uh, who will entrust you with true riches? And if you have not been faithful in that which is another's, who will give you that which is your own? No servant can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. So we are getting into this section in Luke's gospel uh, where Jesus talks a good bit about money. And so it, it now immediately, you know, when we say, OK, well, I'm going to go, I'm going to hear from the gospels a sermon about money. What might the lesson you anticipate? What might what moral might the preacher bring to you today? Might it be something about not being selfish or greedy? about being generous and giving to others. Do you expect Jesus to tell you a story about a guy who rips off his boss and then to say, you know, there's something you can learn from him, right? And so when it comes to the Bible's teaching about money, we tend to think we already know everything the Bible is going to say. And we're not looking forward to it because either it's boring because we think we already do what we're supposed to do with money, according to the scriptures, or we know what we're not doing and we really don't want to hear about it. Uh, uh, But there's also a third reality, which is perhaps we don't fully understand what the Bible thinks about or teaches about money. I'm pretty sure most of us are familiar with the verses 
verses, uh, in verses 10 through 13, and Jesus is teaching there about being faithful with little, faithful with much. You cannot serve God. And we're like, yeah. But what, we're, what is confusing is how in the world is that an, an explanation of the parable that Jesus told of this shrewd slash dishonest manager? And so today we are going to consider first a surprising lesson about money from Jesus. And then secondly, consider a few principles that Jesus gives us about how to navigate wealth as a Christian. And so first, let's consider a surprising lesson about money in verses 1 through 9 here, which is the story of the uh, shrewd steward. And I call him a shrewd steward rather than dishonest, even though he is called dishonest in the parable, but because he is praised for his shrewdness or his cunning at the end. And basically, the story here is, is that there's a wealthy property owner, and it was common if you had a lot of property, you would have someone to manage that property. Many of us may be familiar with the story of Joseph in, Gen- in the book of Genesis, and he went to go work for Potiphar, right? And, and what did he do? He was the manager of Potiphar's household. So this is, you know, a large estate. Maybe you like to watch shows like Downton Abbey or something like that, that type of Victorian era thing where they would have essentially house managers that were managing the affairs of the household. Well, that's what this is, a very wealthy man who, and who has men, who has other people who owe him very large debts. A hundred measures of oil is a lot of oil, okay? Um, and so, and so it, is, it, is a, it is a lot. And so he even, and, and that means that the debtors are probably themselves fairly well-to-do. So this is a guy who loans money to rich people, right? That's, that's kind of basically how this works. And so uh, now, uh, uh, now um, for a manager to be wasting his master's possessions was considered to be pretty despicable in the ancient world. Uh, and so the, and the owner gets wind of this. And so he notifies the, the manager that he is uh, summarily fired and he needs to get, uh, you know, get the spreadsheets in order, get the profit and loss. Give me the P&Ls here. And I need to see the how you work. You know, I need to see the books. Uh, get those in line before you leave and don't let the door hit you on the way out. And so the manager uh, takes stock of himself and and has a moment of honesty as he confesses that he's too weak for physical labor and too proud to beg from his friends and family or even worse on the street. And so then in a moment of inspiration, he says, as the Greek kind of actually communicates, is more kind of a, aha, Eureka, I've got it. I came up with my, the answer to my problems. And so he begins to call in his master's debtors one by one and have them. It's interesting he does it one by one, so, you know, to preserve the secrecy of what he's about to do. And he has them uh, reduce their debts, one by half, one by uh, 20%, essentially. And, <clears throat> and these, uh, th- these debts were large. He's essentially saving these folks thousands of dollars in, in contemporary uh, terms. Uh, now, in that culture, uh, these men would have felt duty-bound to return the favor to the master, I mean, to the manager who is doing this. And they would also feel grateful to the master for being so generous to them as to reduce their debts. And the story ends with the master praising the steward for his shrewdness. So that is the basics of the story, and, and, it's, and so now we enter into the difficulty of the parable. 
Because the ending is what is surprising, because what we would expect is a negative application, right? This is what you should not do. We would expect the master to be angry and to cast out the dishonest manager into utter darkness where there's gnashing of teeth, right? And, and this kind of like, you better be good stewards of what God has given you or else, you know, the same will happen to you kind of thing, right? That's, that's, we would expect that kind of ending, but that's not the ending we get. Instead, Jesus has a positive statement about the steward, and and, and in verse 9, it even further deepens our confusion because he tells his disciples to make friends with unrighteous wealth. But what does that mean? Now we're even more confused. So what in the world are we to make of this? Well, there, as far as I can tell, at least four major interpretations of this parable from evangelical scholars uh, and, uh, and now the last two are very closely related. The first view uh, says that Jesus is basically kind of in code warning his disciples to make clever preparations for the coming per- crisis of persecution uh, because of the preaching of the gospel. You can kind of see that a little bit, but uh, I'm not quite there. The second argues that the dishonest manager isn't actually being dishonest at all, but he is actually righteously uh, releasing uh, the debtors from um, unjust usury, unjust interest, that they were being wrongly charged by the master. Because according to Jewish law, Jews were not allowed to uh, 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 charge interest to other Jews who borrowed from them. Um, Now, the problem is, is that Jesus in the parable literally calls him a dishonest manager. So I don't know. He's not a righteous manager. So it's kind of really reading into the text, uh, I think, to get there. Uh, the third, which I think is close, uh, is, uh, is that, uh, but it's, it's not quite right. The third argues that uh, Jesus is basically saying that we should use our worldly wealth generously to, with others in order to make friends with God. And the fourth uh, is, is, is saying uh, what Jesus is doing here is he's telling his disciples to make use of their earthly wealth in service to God's people that they may be received with joy by God's people in heaven. And, and, uh, and that, is the, that is the take that I think fits best with the text. And I'll give, give some reasons why. But I do want to highlight, this is, if there's a list of very difficult parables, all right? This is on that list, all right? So if it's confusing, if it's difficult, welcome to the party, all right? So, um, and uh, now I do think that this, this actually makes sense of not just the parable itself, but actually is what makes sense of what Jesus says in verses 10 through 13. This understanding of what Jesus says about how we're supposed to use our wealth as a blessing to God's people that we may be received with joy by God's people in heaven. Uh, and so this is, and this is also a good moment for us to, re- to reckon with the fact that, um, it's kind of almost like a no-duh statement when you say it, but it has to be said because sometimes people really get turned around with, when they read their Bibles, which is not all passages in Scripture are equally clear. Amen? <laughs> like, there's some stuff that you read there and you're like, I have no idea what I just read. All right? And you're just like, and there's some stories that you're just like, okay, this is crazy. I don't, I don't know what's going on here. All right? That's okay. Like, not all scripture is accurate. We actually, that's a statement, that's a point that's made in the Westminster Confession of Faith, our confessional document. It says, in chapter 1, 
that not everything in the Bible is readily clear, except that which is necessary for salvation, right? That is abundantly clear such that anyone uh, can, can pick it up and read it and find it, all right? Um, but... Um, but the reality is, uh, so, so the reality is that when we run into unclear passages, we need to take what is clear in the scriptures to help make the unclear at least a bit clearer, right? And so, and so, if we're using that process, then it is called the analogy of faith, where scripture interprets scripture. And I'm not going to go through all the different scriptures, but if we consider Jesus' teaching in light of his teaching as a whole, things that he says in this gospel and other gospels, the context of the New Testament, what the apostles say, what the letters say, um, and then and then even the Old Testament teaching. Well, then, then we can we can actually really kind of narrow our options in ter- in terms of what Jesus is saying here, okay? Because if we think Jesus is telling us to do something unjust, something something sinful, or something like that, well, obviously that's not true, because based upon the very clear teaching that Jesus has given, and even everything else in the scriptures, we we know um, that uh, th- there is you know that wealth and material prosperity are never the goals in life, the ultimate goals in life. Uh, we know that greed, theft, swindling people out of their money is also not an option. And so that means that unrighteous wealth cannot mean wealth that we got through like illicit means somehow that we, you know, stiffed our neighbor and we're like, well, Jesus said to rip you off. Like that's not like we can't do that. Right. So so this kind of helps us to fence the yard and to figure out where wh- what is what are these which of these interpretations best fits. And so we so. And this brings us to the meaning of this parable. So first, we need to just uh, be clear. What is it that the master praised the, the, the steward or the manager for? Well, he praised him for his shrewdness. He praised him for his ingenuity, not his integrity. Right? The praise of the steward here is not meant to apply to his dishonest management practices, how he cost his master a bunch of money in order to save his own skin. It was just a clever move. It's like watching a sports game and, you know, and you see like the defender, the pass is going and the defender makes this incredibly athletic uh, move to just get the, you're just like, okay, well, I just got to say that was a good move. You know, like I hate to say it, you know, but 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 I hate to say it, but it was a nice move or or that was a nice plan. That was a nice strategy on the enemy's part on the opposite side. You're just like, I, I got to give respect where respect is due. That's what he's saying here, that the man, the, the master um, uh, it's basically praising him for his cleverness, because in doing what he did, he actually did two things. One, by forgiving the debts. Uh, he, uh, he, he made for himself a bunch of friends that were going to help him out when he didn't have a job. But secondly, he made his master look really generous because he's saying, well, I'm doing this because my master told me to do it. And so they're thinking, man, this guy is the best guy. So they're singing his praises in the community. So he can't go back to them and say, no, you actually owe me this money. He will look really bad. And so, and so because of his, in order to maintain his honor and, and, uh, and his reputation, his now elevated reputation, he has to actually keep it as the man, dishonest manager left it. So he's just like, nice move, <laughs> all right? That is what he's saying here. It reminds me of the old kind of uh, truism or, or statement that people like to say about, you know, 
if only you know these, these, these very clever criminals would apply their minds and energy to honest work, they would actually be quite successful, right? So are we saying it's great that they do crimes? The crimes they committed are awesome? We're like, no. But we're saying, but the ingenuity that, that, that got them to this point to do that, if they would just do honest work, they could actually do a lot. Well, you're praising one aspect. It doesn't mean you're praising all of it. And that's what Jesus is doing here. And the point here is made in verse 8 by Jesus. They says, the sons of this world, like the shrewd steward, the dishonest manager, tend to be more clever in worldly affairs than the people of God or the sons of light. Okay. And so when Jesus talks about the unrighteous wealth in verse 9, it basically we need to understand as simply as secular wealth, money, property, capital, the stuff that any, any of us could, could, you know, whether believer or unbeliever, can exchange goods, goods and services for. He doesn't, uh, and, so, and so Jesus assumes, also we should notice here, he assumes in saying what he does in verse 9, that this unrighteous wealth is only temporary. It will fail you. Right? And so he says, but so rather than just storing up something that's going to fail you in the end, Jesus encourages us to make clever use of it now to bless others, to make friends with others, especially with the people of God. And I say people of God because who else is going to welcome us into eternal dwellings except God's people? So how does that work? What it would, it, practically speaking, what are we talking about here? Well, for one thing, you know, today, you know, we're talking about the, you know, we're talking about supporting missions. We're talking about like we just did giving, right? We give to the church and we give to missions, uh, and and so you know, when you're giving to the church, you are supporting ministry in the life, in not only for your own life, but also for the benefit of your brothers and sisters in Christ that are around you and others who are not here yet. When we, when we give to missions, I mean, how many people have already been or might be helped through our support of missions who have, who have um, you know, we could, look, we took money, we're taking money when we, when we give to the missions, right? That monthly amount that you're giving, you're saying, we're going to take this money, because money is a zero-sum game <laughs> in the sense that if I give money to missions, I can't take that money and spend it somewhere else, right? I'm giving up something for something else. And so we take this money that we could have spent on this thing or that thing or whatever it is, and we give it to missions. And that goes to the support of the work of the missionaries who are, who are, who are bringing people to faith, who are building up the church in Central Asia, in Leeds, in the, in the United Kingdom, at, at, at Pitt University, um, or at, through the distribution of the Arabic Study Bible, the Psalms Hadith. And, and so how many brothers and sisters in Christ might we meet one day who were brought to faith through those ministries? How many Christians might be have built up and had their faith strengthened through our support of them, through our use of secular wealth today? And so all our stuff, all our money, our possessions, they will fail us one day. And, we, and so we may as well... If, there, if that's going to fail us, Jesus says you may as well use it now to bless others and to make friends who will receive you when you go to be with the Lord. And so this is the essentially the meaning of the, uh, of the parable of the dishonest manager or the shrewd steward. Is that, you know, he says, you know, it, it, Jesus says elsewhere that we should be as 
clever or wise as serpents, but innocent as doves, right? Is that, it's that kind of concept and that there's a clever use in doing missions. You talk to missionaries who have gone to really hard places, you got to get real clever with what you got, right? And so it's a, how, can we, how can we use what we have creatively for the sake of Christ? And so this brings us to the second aspect in verses 10 through 13, which is the second point today is how to navigate wealth as a Christian. And just and there's a few principles here that Jesus gives. And really, and there's two key words that we need to remember when we're thinking about how do we navigate wealth as believers. And so and there's two key words, and that is, and the first one is faithfulness, and the second one is devotion. Faithfulness and devotion. Jesus talks about both. And so verses 10 to 12, essentially what Jesus says is, be faithful with what you have. Be faithful with what you have, even if you might consider it to be just a little bit. Just to be a little. Now, we do not all possess the same amount of wealth, capital, resources. We don't, we don't, we don't each enjoy the same level of physical bodily health. We don't enjoy the exact same amount of time upon this earth. And Jesus highlights that whatever you have, be faithful with. And actually, I want to clarify what he means by very little here. Because very little certainly would include those who are tight financially or materially poor. But it would also, I would argue, include Christians with vast amounts of wealth. Now, why do I say that? Well, because for one thing, Jesus is not setting a standard for materially poor Christians and a second standard for wealthy Christians. Well, if you only have a little, then here's your rule, right? Second, God is not impressed by any amount of material wealth. He's not like, oh, that's your stock portfolio? Very nice. You know, you made some good investments, right? Your house is huge. Right? Jesus is like, wait, do you see my dad's house? Right? <laughs> what is any amount? What is, what is billions of dollars compared to the riches of Christ in glory? Because money, look, the reality is, and poor, and you know, poor people, like people who have less money, and if, and if you've been in that place or you're in that place, you're like, look, money could really help me out right now. All right? I could use some money. All right, money can't buy you the most important things, but it can buy you a roof. It can buy you food. It can buy you a car that works. All right, so this is not Jesus or me saying we don't need money or you don't need money. All right, that we need to co commit, uh, we need to make vows of like poverty or something like that. But we do need to realize that the the uh, that even if we have the vast amount of wealth that we desire. It won't buy the most important things. And in the end, all of it is just kindling to the fire of judgment that is going to burn up everything and remake the new heavens and the new earth. And further, I would just remind you that you are vastly more wealthy than you realize, and we often forget it. We miss this because we, have, we struggle with the 10th commandment, to be content with what we have, to be grateful for God's gifts that we have. We often long for what we don't have and meditate on that. 
I remember one thing my dad, my dad told me back in the 90s, and he, uh, it, my dad loves Sentras. He had this love affair with the Nissan Sentra. He just, he just would not stop buying Sentras, all right? It, just, it was a thing, okay? And, uh, and, and, so, and it wasn't always like, the, it wasn't the newest Sentra. It was just the Sentra that, that he could afford, a used one. And, and so, you know, and I was just like, you know, just why? And he's like, you know, they're dependable, all that. But I remember one time we were talking about it, and he said, look, he said, if I can walk out of my apartment and go to my car and put the key in the ignition and turn it and it turns on, I am wealthier than 90% of the world. It is a vast amount of wealth to be clothed, fed, to have a home and a car that works. We're just so used to those things, we don't realize it. And so we need to remember those things and remember that reality. Uh, and, uh, and, but the thing is, it's like, look, there's not a limit here. There's not like, it's not like progressive taxation where you, 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 you've moved up to an, a bad income bracket, right? There's, that's not, that's not how Christianity works, but whatever you have, just know in God, the sight of God, it is very little, all right? It's nothing to boast about, but whatever you have, you have it. And Jesus says, be faithful with it. Because if we can't be faithful with secular riches of whatever amount, then why do we think that we could handle the true riches, Jesus says. If Judas, Iscariot, the traitor, showed his true colors earlier by stealing from the money bag that the disciples used prior to his betrayal, what might how we handle our money reveal about our character? positively or negatively. I mean, think about how we, the test of what, it, uh, the test of to, to be a church officer. It's not how much money do you have? How much money can you give to the church? Well, you can be an officer in the church, right? We consider character primarily. Go read 1 Timothy 3. All the qualifications are character qualifications. And one of the tests, the key tests is how is the man's marriage and home life? How is he at home? Does, how does he love his wife? How does he parent his children? Because if he can't do that, then how in the world is he going to be a faithful deacon or elder if he can't love his own wife or he can't love his children as God requires? How can he lead God's church and care for God's church as God requires? But what is faithfulness? Isn't that a key question? Be faithful. Well, what, what is that? Well, first, faithfulness requires us acknowledging the limitations of wealth in this world to help break the, the, that natural kind of stranglehold that we want to put on it, the, the, the tight grip, that grip. Because, look, I will, you know, I'll tell you, and I think I've talked about this before, like it was much easier uh, when I was in my 20s and broke to say I didn't care about money that I didn't care about houses, that I didn't care about all this stuff, right? Now I have a house, I have some savings, right? And now, and now I'm kind of like, I kind of care about my house. You know, like I kind of care about this thing and I gotta fix this thing, I gotta upgrade this thing, and, we gotta, you know, and the lists are equally as long and all this stuff and, and, and all these things. And so my, it, it, like as, as I've gotten older and I've gotten more things and I spend more money, well, honestly, that, that grip starts to come in and starts to get a little tighter around my stuff. And so, and, and you, start get, you start thinking about that parable that Jesus tells of the soils. 
about how the seed comes up and it gets choked out by the cares of the world. All right? We have to be careful that our love for Christ does not get choked out by our love for money. Because we need to know to our very core. Faithfulness, faithful, faithfulness means that we, need, that we know to our very core that all the money in our bank account and all that we have, all that we desire in this world will ultimately fail us. That we cannot lean our happiness, our eternal joy upon those things. And then to make use of what God has given to us. To enjoy the gifts that God gives us. To enjoy our home, our vacation, our car. To enjoy these meals. To enjoy fellowship together. Like to enjoy those things. Every gift from his hand deserves his thanks and he wants us to enjoy them. But also to use what we have to invest in eternal things and to invest in the people of God. But ultimately, we can only truly answer this question of faithfulness by going to the second aspect, which is that Jesus tells us not only to be faithful with what we have, but also to be ultimately to be devoted to God, not money. In verse 13. One of the key problems with the prosperity gospel is that it treats God as a means to gain wealth. Uh, but, uh, you know, is Jesus, but I, I want to push back against Jesus here, okay, just for a moment. But is Jesus correct that we can't serve two masters? I mean, after all, why can't we serve God and money? I mean, why not that famous commercial? Why not both, right? Why must I hate one and love the other? I mean, I love God and I love money. Why can that, why is that a problem? Well, for one thing, the objects of our love are vastly different. On the one hand, you have God, the uncreated creator who made us and redeemed us by the blood of his blessed son, who has secured us unto eternal life and glory by his spirit through faith alone. And on the other side, we have at this point in our economy some kind of imaginary means of currency by which we can procure things that we eventually will chuck into the garbage heap. Which one is worth more? Which one ought to be loved? Which one is worthy of love? Further, uh, and practically speaking, if we try to serve God and money, there comes a point where we have to sacrifice one for the other because the demands are different. And when it comes down to it, which one are we going to choose? And this brings us to the final uh, aspect of this, which is simply that Jesus changes our view of our possessions. It's not that we don't have possessions or that having possessions is evil. That's not what the scripture teaches us. You know, it's not, it's not money that's evil. It's the love of money that brings all kinds of greed and ugliness out of our hearts. But the question is, why are we talking about all this? Well, I want you to think about, you know, that we, we keep talking about these meetings we're about to have. We've got the missions meeting. We have this church planning meeting. So we're having a missions meeting this afternoon. We're going to be focusing on the money that we are committing as a church to give to our missionaries for the rest of the calendar year. We're going to be doing a planning meeting soon. We're going to consider the direction of the church. And, uh, and, and, the, and, and, and we're going to consider a budget that will be appropriate for that direction. And so uh, money as we utilize it today 
does have a, an ability to communicate what we value in very practical terms, in terms of our resources and what we allocate. Because we can talk a big game about missions and how we love missionaries and we love missions, but when it comes to missions, you're either going or you're sending, and they both cost cash. So, uh, and, and likewise, it doesn't mean that, again, it doesn't mean you have to send, you know, give all the money, all right? But it does mean we give what we can. And likewise, our church budget communicates the resources that we are committing to bring about ministry in our congregation. What does our budget communicate about what we value? That's a question that the church officers ask when we look at our budget. What does this budget communicate about what we value, practically speaking? Right? Money doesn't, doesn't represent everything, but it communicates something about our priorities. And so we need to ask, what does our money and how we handle it communicate about our priorities, about how we regard our possessions? Do we own them or do they own us, as we uh, like to say? Because, and we have to remember, and this is important to know, Christ did not die for the American dream of a middle-class lifestyle. We have to remember that. Christ didn't die, all, uh, you know, neither did Christ die to make you f feel guilty for buying a car. Christ's death and resurrection has freed us from slavery to money and possessions. His love has broken us from the trance of the siren song of materialism so that we will not be dashed upon its rocks and killed and eaten by the sirens. It gets pretty gruesome when you read those Greek myths. But instead, that God would even enable us to use this transient momentary wealth to make heavenly investments, to store up for ourselves treasure in heaven that cannot be stolen or broken or fade or lost. And so we need to look at, uh, at our money and our possessions through the lens of the cross. And to see how we might make clever use of our wealth, whatever we have and whatever amount of it, uh, that, that we would use our worldly secular wealth for the sake of the gospel and how we can be faithful to God with whatever we have. And so as I was thinking about this, this all, this all brought me back to the book of Joshua. After the Israelites had taken the promised land and Joshua came and he, and he gave that final speech to them where he declared God's faithfulness in his promises. And he further challenged the people in view of all that God had done. And he said, therefore, fear the Lord, serve him in sincerity and faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river in, the Egypt, in, in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, then choose this day whom you will serve whether the gods your fathers served in the region or beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And look, there are there, you know, some of us today, we need to look back at there. We may have inherited some family gods that say you've got to have this level of wealth. You've got to have this level of success. You know, this is what is required. There's some people that come out of poverty and they're obsessed with having as much money and as much security as they can have because they didn't have it when they were, when they, when they were younger. Or there's people who come out of it and they say, this is just the standard for, standard for living and I must have this to have a happy life. 
We need to figure out what are the false gods. And if one of those is money and our view of money or possessions, we need to put those gods away. But if not, like Joshua says, we need to choose who we're going to serve. Jesus says you need to choose who you're going to serve. We cannot choose both. We cannot serve God and we cannot serve money. And so for us, the people of God, for the ones that God has delivered from sin and death, who has secured us for himself and promised us eternal life and glory with him. Let us choose this day whom we will serve. Let's choose God over money. And then let us serve the Lord with sincerity and faithfulness, for he is worthy. We are confident that the steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are patient with us, Lord, because it is so easy to get caught up in the lures of the world, to get caught up in our, in, in our clothes, in our homes, in our possessions, and money, and retirement accounts, and vacations, and all these different things. You get caught up in these things, and, and, it's so, and it's amazing, too, how much stuff we can fill into that category of need. And so, Father, we pray that you would remind us of the secret of contentment that Paul shared. That whether we have plenty or we are in want, that we can do all things, that we can endure all things through Christ who gives us strength. And so, Father, we pray that we would learn contentment with what you have, that we would indeed seek to advance our own prosperity and the prosperity of our neighbor, but that we would take that material prosperity as well and we would use it and, and, we, would, and we would cleverly put it to work for the sake of your name, for the glory of your, of, of your grace and gospel, that we would invest in the work of the church and the work of missions, Father, that we would give you thanks for every gift, every momentary gift, every morsel of food that we enjoy, every birthday party, every, every new piece of clothing, every vehicle, every, everything we enjoy. May we give thanks to you and that even as we seek ways to utilize what you have given to us and leverage it for the sake of the kingdom and the spread of the gospel. Oh, Father, we pray that you would free us from guilt and from just running away from you uh, because of our guilt over these things. Lord, may we not, may we not get, play those games or do those things, but rather, Lord, may we honor you. May we repent of ways that we have made worldly possessions our idol. May we put them away and may we submit all that we have and all that we are to you. For we are yours. We are called by your name and we will be with you forever. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.